helpful. I'm now unmuted. It's always the preacher's fault. Okay. <laughs> You're not supposed to agree so quickly, Brenda. All right. Uh, good evening. It's really wonderful to see your faces. It's wonderful to sing with you on a Wednesday night. It's wonderful to have our youth with us. With, with, with us. I won't plan on lateral lisping throughout the entire time. But it's nice to have you guys here tonight. Uh, to commemorate the beginning of Lent. And so, as Brendan said, I'm going to talk a little bit about what Lent is and what we're doing here. Um, this isn't a proper sermon. It's just me talking to you about some stuff. You should have a handout, and we'll go through that. So don't panic. Everything's on the handout. Well, most everything. And uh, we'll get through this. So what are we doing? Well, Lent is the historic season of 40 days leading up to Easter. It's 46, actually, but we'll get to that in a minute. It's a season of preparation of self-examination and of fasting, of, of self-denial in some ways. Now, one of the chief reasons that we fast for this season is because Jesus himself fasted for 40 days prior to the beginning of his ministry. So us fasting in this season is a kind of identification with Jesus. We're trying to be like him in some ways. Now, in the church year, Lent is also a kind of runway to Easter, and so we're preparing ourselves now so that we can rejoice even more when Easter comes. And it's a way to mark the time so that it doesn't just slip by. And we are marking the time together during the season. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I thought Jesus was born at Christmas and then died at Easter. I thought he had a really short life <laughs> from these things. And um, uh, we, we, church year is funny sometimes, so there, there were time between that. So we're just trying to build a sense of marking time and of, of keeping time uh, together in some special ways. So why Ash Wednesday? Well, the use of ash in the service seems to have two kind of main Bible reasons behind it. Uh, one of them, I'm going to read some scriptures for you that aren't listed for you, but one of them is that dust and ashes in the scriptures is often the composition of humanity. So in Genesis 3.19, after Adam and Eve have been cursed, and they're going to die, God says, dust you are, and to dust you will return. So there's something of our mortality that's asserted in this. But it's not just mortality. It's also a reminder that because of sin, something is wrong with the world. And more than just the world, something's wrong with us. And we're remembering that. Another passage is, say, Genesis 18, 20, 18, 27. This is Abraham speaking to God. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. So Abraham acknowledges that his composition is lowly and humble. He's made of humble stuff. But ashes also are a symbol of mourning and fasting. So in a passage like Esther 4.1, it says, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes and went out to the city wailing loudly and bitterly. So putting ashes on your head was a way of showing that you were in a state of mourning. Uh, Job 42.6 says something similar, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You get these phrases. And then Jonah 3.6, when news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. So there's something of repentance tied to the image of ashes that we're drawing from throughout the kind of biblical narrative. Now, traditionally, we've got three little bowls of ashes here. You can see them. They're black. They're ashes. These are the remains of people who disagreed with... No. Um, <laughs> um, churches, that, churches that celebrate Palm Sunday with palm fronds uh, wave them around, and they keep the palm fronds, and then they reduce them to ashes. So these are converted palm fronds used in Palm Sunday services. So that's, that's where these come from. They're 
certified, okay? So um, <laughs> I'm going to turn to our handout, and I'm going to read the passage about Jesus' fasting to get us started. So it's Matthew, if you have your Bibles, it's Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Uh, oh, it's on the screen, so you can read it there as well. Thank you, Paul. Well done. So here's what it says in Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. That's the funniest understatement in the entire Bible, okay? Then he became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. There's lots of wonderful things in this passage we're not going to talk about tonight. Uh, we'll come back to them another day. But I want to talk about what this means for us in terms of fasting. And we'll go through these purposes. So first, we've got these three purposes of fasting. And the first is that we fast to assert that we are not mere animals. In fasting, we reassert our humanity. We are not just animals. We're human. Now, in the whole universe, we're pretty unique beings. We're material, spiritual combinations. We're amphibians. We're designed to travel in two different worlds, the world of flesh and the world of spirit. We're made from the dust of the ground in Genesis, a way of saying we're material, and we have the breath of God in us, a way of saying spiritual. Nothing else has this unique combination of God's breath and the dust of the ground. We've been pulled up from the earth. And so when Jesus says the words, man does not live by bread alone, he's also saying that the human creature is not a purely material thing. There's more to you than your materiality. You're not just your materiality. There's more to you than this. Now, many years ago, there was this famous movie called The Matrix that came out. It used to be one of the most well-known movies, but I realized that some of you probably weren't born when that happened. You've never seen it, and nothing makes me feel quite as old as I am as remembering these things. There's a character in the movie named Mouse who says these words. He says, if we deny our impulses, we deny the very things that make us human. Well, he's just completely wrong. It's not our impulses that make us human. That's our animal instinct. Rather, if we control our impulses by asserting our spirit, we give definition to the very thing that separates us from animals. Animals have no control of our instinct. We, as animals with spirit, do have control of our instinct. We can choose not to eat. Animals don't fast. It's a very critical distinction between us. No animal has control over its desire, but we do. And one of the narratives you'll hear from the world is the reduction of you are your desires. If you want a thing, you should have it. In fact, you're less human if you don't have it. But we summarily disagree with this completely, under no circumstances do we think that's what makes the human. Now, at the same time, there's this business of a thing called asceticism. Now, that's the practice of excessively punishing your bodies. You know, the people who, who starve themselves and become, they shrink, or you see the people who, like, they put hooks in their skin and, like, drag things behind them. It's really weird. Don't Google it if you want to sleep well tonight. Um, it's odd. And what this happens is excessively punishing our bodies has the effect of denying the material aspect of our humanness. 
We are not pure spirits trapped in bodies. That's not what we are either. For some people, fasting is a way not to become more human, but to become entirely spiritual. Maybe you've thought about this. I'm going to become more spiritual by just denying my body all the time. That's not what this is about. Think of Yoda. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter, right? He grabs hold of it. Just remember, Yoda's also Miss Piggy, same voice. Okay, so. Um, so Yoda's wrong. We're not luminous beings. We're both luminous and spiritual beings. We're physical and spiritual. We're these amphibians. We've got this weird space in the world. Now, it's because of the effects of sin that we live with divided bodies. We don't have perfect control over our bodies. We struggle between the negotiation between what's spiritual and what's physical. And sin is what makes us feel either like we are entirely animal or we are entirely spiritual. And we try to resolve the conflict between us by choosing one or the other. And that's sin's work in our lives. Therefore, fasting is more about discipline and balance than it is about punishment or imbalance. Fasting is about self-discipline and finding a balance in your life. It's not about self-punishment. It's really not what we're talking about. And so in the end, our fasting should make us more and not less human. When you fasted, you should be more human because of it. That's what we want to have. All right, that was number one. Number two is this. We fast to remind ourselves that the word of God, Jesus Christ, is more important to us than any earthly thing. We fast to reprioritize Jesus as the most important thing to all of us. One of the things we will all discover as we walk through life is that gradually our priorities get all screwed up. We start discover that we are caring for certain things out of all proportion to their real worth. We're rearranging our lives around television shows. That's nuts, right? We're rearranging, excuse me, we upset beyond all reason that we can't get the flavor of bubble tea we want or coffee or their out of our favorite hot cocoa. And, you know, the shelves are empty and we're just losing it at poor service people in Loblaws because they don't have what we need or think we need. And I don't know what these things are in your lives, but I'm certain that you do have them. And I want to identify each of them as an area of dependency. That's a place where you're living more for the things than you are for God. If I don't get my way, I can't be happy. That's a dependency. Now, it's sin, of course, that creates these false dependencies, and it's sin when we draw the significance of our lives more from things than we do from God. So Lent is about reasserting the priority of Jesus, putting other things in their proper place by putting Jesus first. We don't live by bread alone. We do need bread, but not bread alone. Now, third and finally, we fast to remind ourselves of the fundamental goodness of creation. Therefore, we fast so that we can also feast. And the two words are clearly linked. And I said this this past Sunday to some people who were here, fasting is not about bad things, it's about good things. It's not about bad things, it's about good things. When God created the heavens and the earth, he declared it good. And when he made you a hybrid creature of spirit and materiality, he said, good. I like it this way, I want it this way. And however, when we get things out of perspective um, in our lives, we lose track of this fundamental goodness. And it's only our true humanity, the proper balance between our spiritual and material lives, that we're able to appreciate the goodness of creation. So denying yourself good things is a powerful way to remind yourself of their fundamental goodness. Denying yourself some good thing is a powerful way to remind yourself of its real goodness. Now, you understand this implicitly. If you have a diet that consists entirely of sugar, are you going to be happy with sugar? You're going to get sick of it. Which of you as a kid ate way too much cake and discovered regret? Maybe your first experience of real regret. Oh, the stomach ache. You've done that. 
If you ate pizza three meals a day, every day, you'd probably grow sick of pizza. Although there was that one guy who ate Big Macs for like 40 years. That was weird. That was a kind of special weirdness. Sometimes we have to take a break from good things so we can remind ourselves of the fact that they are, in fact, really good. So if you know you're going to eat a massively good meal one day, some of you do this. If you know that Thanksgiving is coming, do you gorge yourself at breakfast and lunch knowing that there's a massive feast coming in the afternoon? So that you don't get to enjoy the feast, do you? Or if I know that I'm going out for sushi and Korean barbecue, all you can eat, I take a break from the breakfast, right? And maybe I hold back on lunch. And then when I get there, I can, fill, I can gorge my... That's terrible. No, you don't. But you can eat. You can feast. You prepare yourself for the feast by fasting. Now, the false vision of fasting denies that the world is good. And once again, the denial of goodness comes from sin. It's sin that makes us think that God's creation isn't good. That sin says that creation isn't good. And part of Lent is remembering this. So Lent is about a dynamic of fasting with feasting, self-denial to remind us of goodness. That's what we want to do. Now, in all three of these areas I've mentioned sin. Awareness of sin is an important part of our tradition, and especially during Lent. And we use our time of fasting to identify areas of sin in our lives and bring them to God. But I'm not a big time of Lent being about self-flagellation. You know, so you take the whip and you beat yourself up. Uh, self-pity, or even false warning, like being excessively sad. I don't think that's what we're supposed to about. Lent and fasting is about self-discipline as a kind of spiritual exercise. And so in a minute, we're going to come back to a passage in Matthew where we talk about um, what this means a little more. So I've got some rules for fasting here, 10 of them. Uh, we'll go through these a little quicker than we go through the, the three purposes, uh, but you can follow along pretty easily. So rule number one is you fast six days a week and not on Sundays. So I think this is great news. Oh, pull the mic up. Take the seventh day of the fast as a week and rest from your fast and remember to feast on this day. So um, if you remember in the church tradition, Christ dies on Friday and he's in the tomb on the Sabbath, Saturday, and he comes back to life on Sunday, the first day of the week. All right, so what's Jesus doing on Holy Saturday? He's taking a Sabbath rest like a good Jew. Um, it's very, very intentional on parts of these things. So he enjoys the Sabbath. Um, and he gets up, and so for us, every Friday is like a mini Good Friday. And every Sunday is a mini Resurrection Sunday, where we're celebrating the resurrection. And the power of the resurrection is so big and so awesome that how can you fast on such a celebratory day? You can't. The celebration of Jesus exceeds anything that you do in terms of personal piety. So uh, it's important to remember that's why there's 46 days in Lent and not 40. Uh, the Sundays don't count because the resurrection's too awesome, Okay. So that's at least the logic. Number two, because fasting is tied to feasting, pick something to fast from that you would normally feast on. So whatever you're fasting from should be something you'd celebrate with a good conscience. In other words, you don't fast from sinning. Um, you can't fast from sin because you wouldn't feast on sin. You wouldn't say, you know, six days a week, I'm not going to steal anything, but Sunday's coming. <laughs> right? These six days a week, I'm gonna, not going to get hammered, but on Sunday, oh, 7 a.m. hits, I'm hitting the bottle, right? It's really not how this is supposed to work. Um, I could see someone reasonably choosing to use the season of Lent to try, for example, to try to stop smoking. They say, I've got, I've got to, I'm going to use these 40 days as a fast and self-discipline, and I want to do this. But you've got to realize you can't feast, right? So um, that's a permanent fast. I could see that being a reasonable way of discipline, but I prefer... Um, for your, anyway, talk to me if that's what you want to do. Number three, never choose the impossible. Uh, you'll only get discouraged. Instead pick, instead, pick a manageable fast 
one where you can succeed. Um, I, was, I was young once and ambitious, and I had dreams of things like, you know, I'm going to eat one meal a day for Lent, for the entire season of Lent, and I'm going to pray for 20 of the 24 hours a day, and I'm only going to sleep three hours a night, and I'm going to get all my work done, right? And you set insane and ambitious goals for yourself. Um, this is a fast that's set up for failure. You're just going to fail, so don't set up yourselves for failure. Or you can say, I'm not going to shop for 40 days. That might be a challenge, right? Like, you might need to eat. And there might be things. They're like, I'm not going to speak for 40 days. But if you're married, you might want to consult your spouse about these things. Or your parents. Or your roommates. Or uh, you need to think about what these things are. You're setting yourself up for failure. Okay? So pick something that's possible. Number four is manage your time. The purpose of fasting is not to fill the time with more of what you always do, but to give the time you are spending fasting as a special dedication to God. I think this is intuitive, but it needs to be explained. For example, if you fast from one, a meal at work, let's say you take a lunch a week and you're not going to eat lunch, don't just fill it with work time. Don't just fill the time. Find some place to go and sit and read your Bible and pray for the half hour you would have spent eating. So convert the time you would have spent into something else. So it's not just uh, dead time for your soul. I think that's important. Uh, number five, fasting isn't limited to food, so think outside the box. And the key thing to look for is places where you're trusting something more than God. So is it television? Is it the internet? Is it social media? Um, is it your car? Is it socialization? Uh, I've got some lists for stuff later you could think about. But if you feel that area of dependency, you could take a step, take a step away from it and discover what that's like. Number six, if you have health concerns like hypoglycemia or diabetes, do not fast from food. Okay? Say that very loudly. Find another way to assert your humanity, but never harm yourself. That's not the point, to harm yourself in this stuff. It should be obvious, but I have to assert it. Fasting is about discipline and self-discipline, and especially if you have special needs, you shouldn't press against those needs. If you've got dietary needs, don't fight against your body in that way. Maybe put this another way. Don't fast from your medication. You're taking, don't, that's, don't mess with it. Keep, take care of your body, right? Push yourself in some ways, but take care of your body. Uh, number seven, if you find fasting hard, you've probably picked something good. It should be a little hard. Uh, none of you has ever gone for a run, a first run, without being out of breath, and you've never lifted weights without feeling sore. If it doesn't hurt a little, it means you're not working hard enough. Uh, so don't fast from something you'd never do. I'm going to fast this year from watching HGTV. <laughs> doesn't cost a lot, right? It's pretty low. I, it's not going to hurt me very much. Or I, I've decided I'm just not going to eat cheeseburgers every day. Well, I don't eat cheeseburgers every day anyway, so that's not a big deal. Like, you're picking something... Um, that's, you don't need to, it's not a challenge. So you need to have some kind of challenge. Number eight's pretty important, I think, in terms of our understanding. It says, never fast in a way that shames other people. Fasting is about you and God, not about how spiritual you appear to your coworkers or friends. Fasting's between you and God. Now, this is where we get this passage from Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, in this passage and in the passage on the prayer that's around it and on giving around it, Jesus is talking about people who use their public religious acts as a way to shame other people. I use my public prayers to make you look bad, so I look good to the 
to, you're bad looking makes me look better. And that's how it is with prayer, and that's how it is with giving, and that's how it is with fasting as well. So I'm manipulating the social cycles to make myself look bigger from my religious actions. So they seem to appear more spiritual than others, uh, and other people will look at them and be impressed. And Jesus says, well, they've got their reward. Um, they're impressed with you. That's all you get from all your efforts. So um, say you're fasting from a meal, and one of your coworkers asks you to go for, to a, with a group for lunch. All right, so you're at work. And you're fasting that day for lunch, you set yourself to fast, and your coworker says, hey, come have lunch with us, we're all going out together. So how do you respond to a situation like this? Well, you have a couple options. You can say, no thanks, I've got other plans today. Pretty straightforward, you've not rubbed it in their face, it's no big deal, you're not saying anything to them. Um, if they push, you can like, say something else like this, you could say, thanks so much, but I'm not eating lunch today. Okay? And you've told, you're not hiding anything, you're telling them the truth, but it's not a big deal. And if they ask you why, you can say, you know what, I'm observing a fast for Lent, and I wanted to pray during my lunch hour, but ask me another day and I can go with you. Now, the secrecy of the fast isn't about, like, keeping it locked in a box and quiet and secret and hidden from everyone. It's about how you use your fasting in the community. So actually, I think in terms of fasting, we, it's really probably a great idea to share your fasts with your brothers and sisters in faith, because then they can support you in it. And it's not about one-upsmanship, you know, well, I'm giving up this, well, I'm giving up this, well, I'm giving, you know, it's about, um, it's about journeying together through this season. So I think it's not a secret in that sense. It's a secret in the sense that your fasting is for God and not for other people, but it is still in community. So let's think about this. If you visit someone's home and they offer you dessert, but say you're fasting from sweets, what do you do? You have to make a choice. Do I honor my host, do I honor, excuse me, do I honor the gospel best by saying, no thanks, I'm fasting? Or do I honor the gospel best by saying, thanks so much, this is delicious? You might have to make a choice in that moment. Will the host be pointed to Jesus more by you saying, you know what, I'm fasting from this, thank you? Or will the host receive Jesus more by you receiving their gift and being a good recipient? Uh, one year I was fasting from meat, and my kindly Chinese landlords, they were really kind. They, had brought, they brought me like homemade dumplings. And I thought, well, what do I do now? I ate the dumplings. They were delicious. Okay. Um, so number nine is set clear rules for your fast. When do you begin and end? All right. What are the hours for it? How does it work? Uh, what is allowed and what's not allowed? All right. So you have no sugar. Like you say no sugar, but do you mean it? Do you mean it? Like no sugar in your tomato sauce? No sugar in your tea or coffee? No like where, how far does the no sugar go? Uh, um, if you're not snacking, like what, is, what, is, what constitutes a snack, right? How do you define these things? Uh, you find different ways to set really clear rules. Uh, what about your son's birthday party? My son's birthday always falls during Lent. If I'm fasting from dessert, do I not eat cake on his birthday? I think that's absurd. You should eat cake. My son's birthday is a feast day in my family, get it? So you just, you, you bend with things. It's not, it's not inflexible. That's not what it's supposed to be. And number 10, and lastly, if you fail, forgive yourself and move on. There are no prizes for self-pity. You don't win anything for being piteous about this stuff. If you pick a food fast and you're skipping a meal a day, but in the middle of the afternoon the food cravings get so bad you can't think straight, guess what? Eat something. Just eat something. Don't be a superhero, and then forgive yourself and move on. Try again the next day and see how far you get. That's okay. Forgiving ourselves, I think, is actually really difficult to do. It's much easier to beat ourselves up and expect Jesus to love us more because we beat ourselves up. Uh, but that's not what he wants. He wants you to do well. Um, I've observed a lot of fasts throughout the years. I'm going to talk about these for a minute, and then we'll wrap up. 
Um, some have been successful and some have been complete failures. So one year, Lisa and I agreed not to watch movies. Okay, I own a lot of movies, really like movies. And uh, this is kind of a big deal. So instead of watching movies, we watched twice as much television. Um, I didn't set good boundaries. I didn't set good rules for the fast. And it was, it was, it was catastrophic in terms of how we, how we planned it out. Uh, one year, I skipped lunch every Friday. So uh, because I was in an office that was a weird space, I would get into my car and I would drive. The first Friday, I made a mistake. I parked in the Wendy's parking lot. And then I, um, it was nearby, and I had to smell their burgers the whole time. That was really, really awkward. And on the first few Fridays were honestly miserable. I hated it. I hated, my, I hated the afternoons, and I'd snap at people, and doing it out food was really hard for me. Um, but after my body got used to what was happening, I actually came to really appreciate and look forward to those Fridays. And those afternoons when I was hungry became really sweet and wonderful times for me. And I learned something really important about fasting during those times. And what happened is that during the afternoons, every time I felt a hunger pain, pang, or my stomach rumbled, I was reminded to pray and give glory to God. Uh, and so it wasn't an immediate, like, I started fasting and immediately I was better off. It took three or four weeks. And by the sixth fast, I was really in it. And I loved it. And I was actually sad that the fast was over, uh, which is kind of a weird thing to be like, oh, I'm sad I'm not, not eating it. I don't know. Uh, you can always not eat. That's fine. Uh, one year, and I've done this many times, I fasted from sugar and cream in my coffee. That was a great experience. I love sugar and cream in my coffee. And so drinking black coffee is always a subpar coffee experience. Um, and I'm reminded with every sip of bitter coffee in the morning that I'm fasting. Um, and so it's then my drinking becomes, my, drink, my coffee drinking becomes a reminder of my, um, of my commitment to the Lord. Uh, one year I mentioned I was a vegetarian for Lent. Um, and I was, I've never been so cold in my life. I was cold all the time. I couldn't get warm, and I couldn't get full, and it was just, it was, that was a challenge, uh, and that was hard. So I pushed myself. Um, again, when you're in charge of the family diet, you've got to check with other people before you do some of these things, right? Because if you're the family's primary cook, and you've committed to vegetarianism, you've got to make sure that everybody else is on board, because you just committed your whole family to a fast, right? So you want to be faithful and courteous. Okay, so if you flip over, I've got some suggestions on the other side. Um, some things, so some things uh, sample, take, think about dependency, think about, where, uh, think about what's good and what you could do. So you could fast from socialization. Uh, so imagine taking a one evening a week when you'd normally hang out with friends and spend it with God instead. Right? Book, book your calendar with the Lord Almighty, right? <laughs> or TLA. Uh, and then sit at home and read and focus on Him for a bit. Uh, think about fasting from a taste. So it's not about avoiding eating. But what about changing the types of food you eat? So dessert or extra sauce or pass on cream and sugar for your coffee. Or uh, you could do things like, uh, you, you, know, you know, these like, um, what's the global south to the two-thirds world lives on like less than $3 a day? So what does it mean for you to eat on $3 a day, right? You eat a lot of beans and rice. Um, but you can fast from kinds of taste, and you can see what that's like. Uh, and then you're tied to justice, and that's interesting as well. Uh, what about fasting from noise? What if you take a break from your music player for 40 days and listen to the world around you and pray? I think I said on Sunday I had a friend who did this. He took the music out of his car, and he almost went crazy, okay? Because we're filled with noise, and we're filled with sound, and not having music around was deeply alarming to him, but he, he muscled through. But what he did then was on Sundays, he had such a great joy of being able to listen, and he listened far more intentionally. Uh, so there was a resetting there. 
Uh, take one meal, uh, just a meal a week, and skip that same meal for the six. So you skip lunch each Monday and take your note. This is only going to work if you have a regular lunch schedule. If your schedule's all over the place, it's not going to work. If your schedule's like mine, it's going to be really challenging. Uh, or you could take a, like a fast from driving your car. What if you took transit for the 40 days? And now you're having to arrange your schedule and your life and think about what it means, uh, the joy of being, um, not de being dependent on other people to get around. And I think that's its own challenge as well. All right. I've given you some suggestions. Um, I hope that we can find some ways as a community to do this and to grow together. The point is to be self-disciplined, not to be self-punishing. Uh, the point is to be fully human and not to be either artificially spiritual or artificially material. Uh, and that's our goals for this. So uh, we are going to have uh, some time of quiet reflection, followed by a confession of sin, and then we'll do the ash ceremony. Okay, we'll explain these things to you in a minute. But I'm going to ask you for a moment just to bow your heads where you are. So where you are, um, whether you're with us in this room or joining us online, just take these next couple moments and reflect on where sin has led you away from our Lord. This is a chance just for simple honesty with the Lord. It's not about beating yourself up. It's not about hating yourself to impress him. It's just about saying, oh Lord, I'm sorry. We're going to pray, pray together this prayer of confession. It will be up on the screen in a moment. Let's recite this together, please. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry. Oh, there's the next page. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And now I say, may Almighty God have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen.